This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Kirsten Ferreri, Los Angeles, California, July 2006. The History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. Translated by Richard Crawley. Book Three, Chapter Ten. Fifth Year of the War. Trial and Execution of the Plataeans. Corsarian Revolution. During the same summer, after the reduction of Lesbos, the Athenians under Nicias, son of Niceratus, made an expedition against the island of Minoa, which lies off Megara, and was used as a fortified post by the Megarians, who had built a tower upon it. Nicias wished to enable the Athenians to maintain their blockade from this nearer station, instead of from Budorum and Salamis, to stop the Peloponnesian galleys and privateers sailing out unobserved from the island, as they had been in the habit of doing, and at the same time prevent anything from coming into Megara. Accordingly, after taking two towers projecting on the side of Nicaea, by engines from the sea, and clearing the entrance into the channel between the island and the shore, he next proceeded to cut off all communication by building a wall on the mainland at the point where a bridge across a morass enabled suckers to be thrown into the island, which was not far from the continent. A few days sufficing to accomplish this, he afterwards raised some works in the island also, and leaving a garrison there, departed with his forces. About the same time in this summer, the Plataeans, being now without provisions and unable to support the siege, surrendered to the Peloponnesians in the following manner. An assault had been made upon the wall, which the Plataeans were unable to repel. The Lacedaemonian commander, perceiving their weakness, wished to avoid taking the place by storm, his instructions from Lacedaemon having been so conceived, in order that, if at any future time peace should be made with Athens, and they should agree each to restore the places that they had taken in the war, Plataea might be held to have come over voluntarily, and not be included in the list. He accordingly sent a herald to them, to ask if they were willing voluntarily to surrender the town to the Lacedaemonians, and accept them as their judges, on the understanding that the guilty should be punished, but no one without form of law. The Plataeans were now in the last state of weakness, and the herald had no sooner delivered his message than they surrendered the town. The Peloponnesians fed them for some days until the judges from Lacedaemon, who were five in number, arrived. Upon their arrival no charge was preferred. They simply called up the Plataeans, and asked them whether they had done the Lacedaemonians and allies any service in the war then raging. The Plataeans then asked leave to speak at greater length, and deputed two of their number to represent them, Astymachus, son of Asipaleus, and Lacon, son of Aemnestus, Proxenus of the Lacedaemonians, who came forward and spoke as follows. Lacedaemonians, when we surrendered our city we trusted in you, and looked forward to a trial more agreeable to the forms of law than those present, to which we had no idea of being subjected. The judges also in whose hands we consented to place ourselves were you, and you only, from whom we thought we were most likely to obtain justice, and not other persons, as is now the case. As matters stand, we are afraid that we have been doubly deceived. We have good reason to suspect, not only that the issue to be tried is the most terrible of all, but that you will not prove impartial, if we may argue from the fact that no accusation was first brought forward for us to answer, but we had ourselves to ask leave to speak, and from the question being put so shortly, that a true answer to it tells against us, while a false one can be contradicted. 
In this dilemma, our safest, and indeed our only course, seems to be to say something at all risks. Placed as we are, we could scarcely be silent without being tormented by the damning thought that speaking might have saved us. Another difficulty that we have to encounter is the difficulty of convincing you. Were we unknown to each other, we might profit by bringing forward new matters with which you were unacquainted. As it is, we can tell you nothing that you do not know already. And we fear, not that you have condemned us in your own minds of having failed our duty towards you, and make this our crime, but that to please a third party we have to submit to a trial the result of which is already decided. Nevertheless, we will place before you what we can justly urge, not only on the question of the quarrel which the Thebans have against us, but also as addressing you and the rest of the Hellenes, and we will remind you of our good services, and endeavour to prevail with you. To your short question, whether we have done the Lacedaemonians and allies any service in this war, we say, if you ask us as enemies, that to refrain from serving you was not to do you injury, if as friends, then you are more in fault for having marched against us. During the peace, and against the Mede, we acted very well. We have not now been the first to break the peace, and we were the only Boeotians then joined in defending against the Mede the liberty of Hellas. Although an inland people, we were present at the action at Artemisium. In the battle that took place in our territory, we fought by the side of yourselves and Pausanias, and in all the other Hellenic exploits of the time, we took a part quite out of proportion to our strength. Besides, you, as Lacedaemonians, ought not to forget that at the time of the great panic at Sparta, after the earthquake, caused by the secession of the Helots to Ithome, we sent the third part of our citizens to assist you. On these great and historical occasions, such was the part that we chose, although afterwards we became your enemies. For this you were to blame. When we asked for your alliance against our Theban oppressors, you rejected our petition, and told us to go to the Athenians who were our neighbours, as you lived too far off. In the war we never have done to you, and never should have done to you, anything unreasonable. If we refused to desert the Athenians when you asked us, we did no wrong. They had helped us against the Thebans when you drew back, and we could no longer give them up with honour, especially as we had obtained their alliance, and had been admitted to their citizenship at our own request, and after receiving benefits at their hands, but it was plainly our duty loyally to obey their orders. Besides, the faults that either of you may commit in your supremacy must be laid not upon the followers, but upon the chiefs that led them astray." With regard to the Thebans, they have wronged us repeatedly, and their last aggression, which has been the means of bringing us into our present position, is within your own knowledge. In seizing our city in time of peace, and what is more, at a holy time in the month, they justly encountered our vengeance, in accordance with the universal law which sanctions resistance to an invader, and it cannot now be right that we should suffer on their account. By taking your own immediate interest and their animosity as the test of justice, you will prove yourselves to be rather waiters on expediency than judges of right, although if they seem useful to you now, we and the rest of the Hellenes give you much more valuable help at a time of greater need. Now you are the assailants, and others fear you, but at the crisis to which we allude, when the barbarian threatened all with slavery, the Thebans were on his side. It is just, therefore, to put our patriotism then against our error now, if error there has been, and you will find the merit outweighing the fault, and displayed at a juncture when there were few Hellenes who had set their valour against the strength of Xerxes, and when greater praise was theirs who preferred the dangerous path of honour to the safe course of consulting their own interest with respect to the invasion. 
to these few we belonged, and highly were we honoured for it, and yet we now fear to perish by having again acted on the same principles, and chosen to act well with Athens sooner than wisely with Sparta. Yet in justice the same cases should be decided in the same way, and policy should not mean anything else than lasting gratitude for the service of good ally, combined with a strong proper attention to one's immediate interest. Consider also that at present the Hellenes generally regard you as a pattern of worth and honour, and if you pass an unjust sentence upon us in this which is no obscure cause, but one in which you, the judges, are as illustrious as we, the prisoners, are blameless, take care that displeasure be not felt at an unworthy decision in the matter of honourable men, made by men yet more honourable than they, and at the consecration in the national temples of spoils taken from the Plataeans, the benefactors of Hellas. Shocking indeed will it seem for Lacedaemonians to destroy Plataea, and for the city whose name your fathers inscribed on the tripod at Delphi for its good service, to be by you blotted out from the map of Hellas, to please the Thebans. To such a depth of misfortune have we fallen, that while the Medes' success had been our ruin, Thebans now supplant us in your once fond regards, and we have been subjected to two dangers, the greatest of any, that of dying of starvation then, if we had not surrendered our town, and now of being tried for our lives. So that we Plataeans, after exertions beyond our power in the cause of the Hellenes, are rejected by all, forsaken and unassisted, helped by none of our allies, and reduced to doubt the stability of our only hope, yourselves. Still, in the name of the gods who once presided over our confederacy, and of our own good service in the Hellenic cause, we adjure you to relent, to recall the decision which we fear that the Thebans may have obtained from you, to ask back the gift that you have given them, that they not disgrace you by slaying us, to gain a pure instead of a guilty gratitude, and not to gratify others to be yourselves rewarded with shame. Our lives may quickly be taken, but it will be a heavy task to wipe away the infamy of the deed, as we are no enemies whom you might justly punish, but friends, forced into taking arms against you. To grant us our lives would be, therefore, a righteous judgment, if you consider also that we are prisoners who surrendered of their own accord, stretching out our hands for quarter, whose slaughter Hellenic law forbids, and who besides were always your benefactors. Look at the sepulchres of your fathers, slain by the Medes and buried in our country, whom year by year we honoured with garments and all other dues, and the first-fruits of all that our land produced in their season, as friends from a friendly country, and allies to our old companions in arms. Should you not decide aright, your conduct would be the very opposite to ours. Consider only, Pausanias buried them thinking that he was laying them in friendly ground, and among men as friendly. But you, if you kill us and make the Plataean territory Theban, will leave your fathers and kinsmen in a hostile soil, and among their murderers, deprived of the honours which they now enjoy. What is more, you will enslave the land in which the freedom of the Hellenes was won, make desolate the temples of the gods to whom they prayed before they overcame the Medes, and take away your ancestral sacrifices from those who founded and instituted them. It were not to your glory, Lacedaemonians, either to offend in this way against the common law of the Hellenes, and against your own ancestors, or to kill us, your benefactors, to gratify another's hatred without having been wronged yourselves. It were more so to spare us, and to yield to the impressions of a reasonable compassion, reflecting not merely on the awful fate in store for us, but also on the character of the sufferers, and on the impossibility of predicting how soon misfortune may fall even upon those who deserve it not. 
we, as we have a right to do, and as our need impels us, entreat you, calling aloud upon the gods at whose common altar all the Hellenes worship, to hear our request, to not be unmindful of the oaths which your fathers swore, and which we now plead, we supplicate you by the tombs of your fathers, and appeal to those that are gone to save us from falling into the hands of the Thebans, and their dearest friends, from being given up to their most detested foes. We also remind you of that day on which we did the most glorious deeds, by your father's sides, we who now on this are like to suffer the most dreadful fate. Finally, to do what is necessary and yet most difficult for men in our situation, that is, to make an end of speaking, since with that ending the peril of our lives draws near. In conclusion we say that we did not surrender our city to the Thebans, to that we would have preferred inglorious starvation, but trusted in and capitulated to you and it would be just, if we fail to persuade you, to put us back in the same position, and let us take the chance that falls to us. And at the same time, we adjure you not to give us up. Your suppliants, Lacedaemonians, out of your hands and faith, Plataeans foremost of the Hellenic patriots, to Thebans, our most hated enemies, but to be our saviors, and not, while you free the rest of the Hellenes, to bring us to destruction. Such were the words of the Plataeans. The Thebans, afraid that the Lacedaemonians might be moved by what they had heard, came forward and said that they too desired to address them, since the Plataeans had, against their wish, been allowed to speak at length, instead of being confined to a simple answer to the question. Leave being granted, the Thebans spoke as follows. We should never have asked to make this speech if the Plataeans on their side had contented themselves with shortly answering the question, and had not turned around and made charges against us, coupled with a long defence of themselves upon matters outside the present inquiry, and not even the subject of accusation, and with praise of what no one finds fault with. However, since they have done so, we must answer their charges and refute their self-praise, in order that neither our bad name nor their good may help them, but that you may hear the real truth on both points, and so decide. The origin of our quarrel was this. We settled Plataea some time after the rest of Boeotia, together with other places out of which we had driven the mixed population. The Plataeans not choosing to recognize our supremacy, as had been first arranged, but separating themselves from the rest of the Boeotians, and proving traitors to their nationality, we used compulsion, upon which they went over to the Athenians, and with them did as much harm for which we retaliated. Next, when the barbarian invaded Hellas, they say that they were the only Boeotians who did not Medize, and that is where they most glorify themselves and abuse us. We say that if they did not meet eyes, it was because the Athenians did not do so either, just as afterwards, when the Athenians attacked the Hellenes, they, the Plataeans, were again the only Boeotians who atticized. And yet consider the forms of our respective governments when we so acted. Our city at that juncture had neither an oligarchical constitution in which all the nobles enjoyed equal rights, nor a democracy, but that which is most opposed to law and good government, and nearest a tyranny, the rule of a close cabal. These, hoping to strengthen their individual power by the success of the Mede, kept down by force the people, and brought him into the town. The city as a whole was not its own mistress when it so acted, and ought not to be reproached for the errors that it committed when deprived of its constitution. Examine only how we acted after the departure of the Mede, and the recovery of the constitution, when the Athenians attacked the rest of Hellas, and endeavoured to subjugate our country, of the greater part of which faction had already made them masters. 
Did we not fight and conquer at Coronea and liberate Boeotia? And do we not now actively contribute to the liberation of the rest, providing horses to the cause, and a force unequalled by that of any other state in the Confederacy? Let this suffice to excuse us for our medism. We will now endeavour to show that you have injured the Hellenes more than we, and are more deserving of condign punishment. It was in defence against us, say you, that you became allies and citizens of Athens. If so, you ought only to have called in the Athenians against us, instead of joining them in attacking others. It was open to you to do this, if you ever felt that they were leading you where you did not wish to follow, as Lacedaemon was already your ally against the Mede, as you so much insist. And this was surely sufficient to keep us off, and, above all, to allow you to deliberate in security." Nevertheless, of your own choice and without compulsion, you chose to throw your lot in with Athens, and you say that it had been base for you to betray your benefactors, but it was surely far baser and more iniquitous to sacrifice the whole body of the Hellenes, your fellow confederates, who were liberating Hellas, than the Athenians only, who were enslaving it. The return that you made them was therefore neither equal nor honourable, since you called them in, as you say, because you were being oppressed yourselves, and then became accomplices in oppressing others. Although baseness rather consists in not returning like for like, than in not returning what is justly due, but what must be unjustly paid." Meanwhile, after thus plainly showing that it was not for the sake of the Hellenes that you alone then did not medize, but because the Athenians did not do so either, and you wished to side with them and be against the rest, you now claim the benefit of good deeds done to please your neighbours. This cannot be admitted. You chose the Athenians, and with them you must stand or fall. Nor can you plead the league then made, and claim that it should now protect you. You abandoned that league, and defended against it, by helping, instead of hindering, the subjugation of the Aegeanetans, and others of its members, and that not under compulsion, but while in enjoyment of the same institutions that you enjoy to the present hour, and no one forcing you, as in our case. Lastly, an invitation was addressed to you, before you were blockaded, to be neutral, and join neither party. This you did not accept. Who then merit the detestation of the Hellenes more justly than you, you who sought their ruin under the mask of honour? The former virtues that you allege you now show not to be proper to your character. The real bent of your nature has been at length damningly proved. When the Athenians took the path of injustice, you followed them. Of our unwilling medism and your willful atticizing, this, then, is our explanation. The last wrong of which you complain consists in our having, as you say, lawlessly invaded your town in time of peace and festival. Here again we cannot think that we were more in fault than yourselves. If of our own proper motion we made an armed attack upon your city and ravaged your territory, we are guilty. But if the first men among you in a state and family, wishing to put an end to the foreign connection, and to restore you to the common Boeotian country, of their own free will invited us, wherein is our crime? Where wrong is done, those who lead, as you say, are more to blame than those who follow. Not that, in our judgment, wrong was done either by them or by us. Citizens like yourselves, and with more at stake than you, they opened their own walls and introduced us into their own city, not as foes, but as friends, to prevent the bad among you from becoming worse, to give honest men their due, to reform principles without attacking persons, since you were not to be banished from your city, but brought home to your kindred, nor to be made enemies to any, but friends alike to all. That our intention was not hostile is proved by our behaviour. 
we did harm to no one, but publicly invited those who wished to live under a national Boeotian government to come over to us, which at first you gladly did, and made an agreement with us, and remained tranquil, until you became aware of the smallness of our numbers. Now it is possible that there may have been something not quite fair in our entering without the consent of your commons. At any rate, you did not repay us in kind. Instead of refraining, as we had done from violence, and inducing us to retire by negotiation, you fell upon us, in violation of your agreement, and slew some of us in fight, of which we did not so much complain, for in that there was a certain justice. But others, who held out their hands and received quarter, and whose lives you subsequently promised us, you lawlessly butchered. If this was not abominable, what is? And after these three crimes committed one after the other, the violation of your agreement, the murder of the men afterward, and the lying breach of your promise not to kill them. If we refrained from injuring your property in the country, you still affirm that we are the criminals, and yourselves pretend to escape justice. Not so, if these your judges decide aright, but you will be punished for all together. Such, Lacedaemonians, are the facts. We have gone into them at some length, both on your account and on our own, that you will justly condemn the prisoners, and we— that we have given an additional sanction to our vengeance. We would also prevent you from being melted by the hearing of their past virtues, if any they such had. These may be fairly appealed to by the victims of injustice, but only aggravate the guilt of criminals, since they offend against their better nature. Nor let them gain anything by crying and wailing, by calling upon your father's tombs and their own desolate condition. Against this we point to the far more dreadful fate of our youth, butchered at their hands, the fathers of whom either fell at Coronea, bringing Boeotia over to you, or seated forlorn old men by desolate hearts, with far more reason implore your justice upon the prisoners. The pity which they appeal to is rather due to men who suffer unworthily. Those who suffer justly as they do are the contrary subjects for triumph. For their present desolate condition they have themselves to blame, since they wilfully rejected the better alliance. Their lawless act was not provoked by an action of ours. Hate, not justice, inspired their decision. And even now the satisfaction which they afford us is not adequate. They will suffer by a legal sentence, not as they pretend as suppliants asking for quarter in battle, but as prisoners, who have surrendered upon agreement to take their trial. Vindicate, therefore, Lacedaemonians, the Hellenic law which they have broken. And to us, the victims of its violation, grant the reward merited by our zeal nor let us be supplanted in your favour by their harangues, but offer an example to the Hellenes, that the contests to which you invite them are of deeds, not words. Good deeds can be shortly stated, but where wrong is done a wealth of language is needed to veil its deformity. However, if leading powers were to do what you are now doing, and putting one short question to all alike were to decide accordingly, men would be less tempted to seek fine phrases to cover bad actions." Such were the words of the Thebans. The Lacedaemonian judges decided that the question whether they had received any service from the Plataeans in the war was a fair one for them to put, as they had always invited them to be neutral, agreeably to the original covenant of Pausanias after the defeat of the Mede, and had again definitely offered them the same conditions before the blockade. This honour having been refused, they were now, they conceived, by the loyalty of their intention, released from their covenant, and having, as they considered, suffered evil at the hands of the Plataeans, they brought them in again, one by one, and asked each of them the same question, that is to say, whether they had done the Lacedaemonians and allies any service in the war, and upon their saying that they had not, took them out and slew them, 
all without exception. The number of Plataeans thus massacred was not less than two hundred, with twenty-five Athenians who had shared in the siege. The women were taken as slaves. The city the Thebans gave for about a year to some political emigrants from Megara, and to the surviving Plataeans of their own party to inhabit, and afterwards raised it to the ground from the very foundations, and built on to the precinct of Hera an inn two hundred feet square, with rooms all round, above and below, making use for this purpose of the roofs and doors of the Plataeans, of the rest of the materials in the wall, the brass and iron, they made couches which they dedicated to Hera, for whom they also built a stone chapel of a hundred feet square. The land they confiscated, and let out on a ten years' lease to Theban occupiers. The adverse attitude of the Lacedaemonians in the whole Plataean affair was mainly adopted to please the Thebans, who were thought to be useful in the war at the moment raging. Such was the end of the Plataeans, in the ninety-third year after she became an ally of Athens. Meanwhile, the forty ships of the Peloponnesians had gone to the relief of the Lesbians, and which we left flying across the open sea, pursued by the Athenians, were caught in a storm off Crete, and scattering from thence made their well to Peloponnesus, where they found at Cyllene thirteen Leucadian and Ambrosiate galleys, with Brasidas, son of Tellus, lately arrived as counsellor to Alcidas. The Lacedaemonians, upon the failure of the Lesbian expedition, having resolved to strengthen their fleet and sail to Corsera, where a revolution had broken out, so as to arrive there before the twelve Athenian ships at Naupactus could be reinforced from Athens, Brasidas and Alcidas began to prepare accordingly. The Corsarian revolution began with a return of the prisoners taken in the sea-fights off Epidamnus. These the Corinthians had released, nominally upon the security of eight hundred talents given by their proxeni, but in reality upon their engagement to bring over Corsera to Corinth. These men proceeded to canvass each of the citizens, and to intrigue with the view of detaching the city from Athens. Upon the arrival of an Athenian and a Corinthian vessel, with envoys on board, a conference was held in which the Corsarians voted to remain allies of the Athenians, according to their agreement, but to be friends of the Peloponnesians as they had been formerly. Meanwhile, the returned prisoners brought Patheus, a volunteer proxenus of the Athenians and leader of the commons, to trial, upon the charge of enslaving Corsaira to Athens. He being acquitted, retorted by accusing five of the richest of their number of cutting stakes in the ground sacred to Zeus and Alcinous, the legal penalty being a stator for each stake. Upon their conviction, the amount of the penalty being very large, they seated themselves as suppliants in the temples to be allowed to pay it by installments. But Patheus, who was one of the Senate, prevailed upon that body to enforce the law, upon which the accused, rendered desperate by the law, and also learning that Patheus had the intention, while still a member of the Senate, to persuade the people to conclude a defensive and offensive alliance with Athens, banded together armed with daggers, and suddenly bursting into the Senate, killed Patheus and sixty others, senators and private persons, some few only of the party of Patheus, taking refuge in the Athenian galley, which had not yet departed. After this outrage, the conspirators summoned the Corsarians to an assembly, and said that this would turn out for the best, and would save them from being enslaved by Athens. For the future, they moved to receive neither party unless they came peacefully in a single ship, treating any larger number as enemies. This motion made, they compelled it to be adopted, and instantly sent off envoys to Athens to justify what had been done, and to dissuade the refugees there from any hostile proceedings which might lead to a reaction. 
upon the arrival of the embassy, the Athenians arrested the envoys and all who listened to them as revolutionists and lodged them in Aegina. Meanwhile, a Corinthian galley arriving in the island with Lacedaemonian envoys, the dominant Corsiran party attacked the commons and defeated them in battle. Night coming on, the commons took refuge in the Acropolis and the higher parts of the city, and concentrated themselves there, having also possession of the Hylaic harbour. Their adversaries occupying the market-place where most of them lived, and the harbour adjoining, looking towards the mainland. The next day passed in skirmishes of little importance, each party sending into the country to offer freedom to the slaves and to invite them to join them. The mass of the slaves answered the appeal of the commons, their antagonists being reinforced by eight hundred mercenaries from the continent. After a day's interval hostilities recommenced, victory remaining with the commons, who had the advantage in numbers and position, the women also valiantly assisting them, pelting with tiles from the houses, and supporting the melee with a fortitude beyond their sex. Towards dusk, the oligarchs in full rout, fearing that the victorious commons might assault and carry the arsenal, and put them to the sword, fired the houses round the market-place and the lodging-houses, in order to bar their advance, sparing neither their own nor those of their neighbours, by which much stuff of the merchants was consumed, and the city risked total destruction, if a wind had come to help the flame by blowing on it. Hostilities now ceasing, both sides kept quiet, passing the night on guard, while the Corinthian ships stole out to sea upon the victory of the commons, and most of the mercenaries passed over secretly to the continent. The next day the Athenian general, Nicostratus, son of Diatrophes, came up from Naupactus with twelve ships and five hundred Messenian heavy infantry. He at once endeavoured to bring about a settlement, and persuaded the two parties to agree together to bring to trial ten of the ringleaders, who presently fled, while the rest were to live in peace, making terms with each other, and entering into a defensive and offensive alliance with the Athenians. This arranged, he was about to sail away, when the leaders of the commons induced him to leave five of his ships to make their adversaries less disposed to move, while they manned and sent with him an equal number of their own. He had no sooner consented than they began to enroll their enemies for the ships, and these, fearing that they might be sent off to Athens, seated themselves as suppliants in the temple of the Dioscuri. An attempt on the part of Nicostratus to reassure them, and to persuade them to rise proving unsuccessful, the commons armed upon this pretext, alleging the refusal of their adversaries to sail with them as a proof of the hollowness of their intentions, and took their arms out of their houses, and would have dispatched some whom they fell in with, if Nicostratus had not prevented it. The rest of the party, seeing what was going on, seated themselves as suppliants in the temple of Hera, being not less than four hundred in number, until the commons, fearing that they might adopt some desperate resolution, induced them to rise, and conveyed them over to the island in front of the temple, where provisions were sent across to them. At this stage in the revolution, on the fourth or fifth day after the removal of the men to the island, the Peloponnesian ships arrived from Cyllene, where they had been stationed since their return from Ionia, fifty-three in number, still under the command of Alcides, but with Brasidas also on board as his adviser, and dropping anchor at Sibota, a harbour on the mainland, at daybreak made sail for Corsera. The Corsirians, in great confusion and alarm at the state of things in the city and at the approach of the invader, at once proceeded to equip sixty vessels, which they sent out, as fast as they were manned, against the enemy, in spite of the Athenians recommending them to let them sail out first, and to follow themselves afterwards with all their ships together.
Upon their vessels coming up to the enemy in this straggling fashion, two immediately deserted. In others the crew were fighting among themselves, and there was no order in anything that was done, so that the Peloponnesians, seeing their confusion, placed twenty ships to oppose the Corsarians, and ranged the rest against the twelve Athenian ships, amongst which were the two vessels Selaminia and Perilous. While the Corsarians, attacking without judgment and in small detachments, were already crippled by their own misconduct, the Athenians, afraid of the numbers of the enemy and of being surrounded, did not venture to attack the main body, or even the centre of the division opposed to them, but fell upon its wing, and sank one vessel. After which the Peloponnesians formed in a circle, and the Athenians rode around them and tried to throw them into disorder. Perceiving this, the division opposed to the Corsarians, fearing a repetition of the disaster of Naupactus, came to support their friends, and the whole fleet now bore down, united, upon the Athenians, who retired before it, backing water, retiring as leisurely as possible, in order to give the Corsarians time to escape, while the enemy was thus kept occupied. Such was the character of this sea-fight, which lasted until sunset. The Corsarians now feared that the enemy would follow up their victory, and sail against the town and rescue the men in the island, or strike some other blow equally decisive, and accordingly carried the men over again to the temple of Hera, and kept guard over the city. The Peloponnesians, however, although victorious in the sea-fight, did not venture to attack the town, but took the thirteen Corsarian vessels which they had captured, and with them sailed back to the continent from whence they had put out. The next day equally they refrained from attacking the city, although the disorder and panic were at their height, and though Brasidas, it is said, urged Alcidas, his superior officer, to do so, but they landed upon the promontory of Leukimi, and laid waste to the country. Meanwhile the commons in Corsera, being still in great fear of the fleet attacking them, came to a parley with the suppliants and their friends, in order to save the town and prevailed upon some of them to go on board the ships, of which they still manned thirty, against the expected attack. But the Peloponnesians, after ravaging the country until midday, sailed away, and towards nightfall were informed by beacon signals of the approach of sixty Athenian vessels from Leucas, under the command of Eurymedon, son of Thucles, who had been sent off by the Athenians upon the news of the revolution, and of the fleet with Alcidas being about to sail for Corsera. The Peloponnesians, accordingly, at once set off in haste by night for home, coasting along shore, and hauling their ships across the isthmus of Leucas, in order not to be seen doubling it. So departed. The Corsarians, made aware of the approach of the Athenian fleet, and of the departure of the enemy, brought the Messenians from outside the walls into the town, and ordered the fleet which they had manned to sail round into the Hellaic harbour and while it was so doing, slew such of their enemies as they laid hands on, dispatching afterwards, as they landed them, those whom they had persuaded to go on board the ships. Next they went to the sanctuary of Hera, and persuaded about fifty men to take their trial, and condemned them all to death. The mass of the suppliants who had refused to do so, on seeing what was taking place, slew each other there in the consecrated ground, while some hanged themselves upon the trees, and others destroyed themselves as they were severally able. During seven days that Eurymedon stayed with his sixty ships, the Corsarians were engaged in butchering those of their fellow-citizens whom they regarded as their enemies, and although the crime imputed was that of attempting to put down the democracy, some were slain also for private hatred, others by their debtors because of monies owed to them. Death thus raged in every shape, and as usually happens at some times, there was no length to which violence did not go. 
sons were killed by their fathers, and suppliants dragged from the altar or slain upon it, while some were even walled up in the temple of Dionysus, and died there. So bloody was the march of the revolution, and the impression which it made was the greater, as it was one of the first to occur. Later on, one may say, the whole Hellenic world was convulsed, struggles being everywhere made by the popular chiefs to bring in the Athenians, and by the oligarchs to introduce the Lacedaemonians. In peace there would have been neither the pretext nor the wish to make such an invitation, but in war, with an alliance always at the command of either faction for the hurt of their adversaries and their own corresponding advantage, opportunities for bringing in the foreigner were never wanting to the revolutionary parties. The sufferings which revolution entailed upon the cities were many and terrible, such as have occurred, and will always occur, as long as the nature of man remains the same, though in a severer or milder form, and varying in their symptoms, according to the variety of the particular cases. In peace and prosperity, states and individuals have better sentiments, because they do not find themselves suddenly confronted with imperious necessities, but war takes away the easy supply of daily wants, and so proves a rough master, that brings most men's characters to a level with their fortunes. Revolution thus ran its course from city to city, and the places which it arrived at last, from having heard what had been done before, carried to a still greater excess the refinement of their inventions, as manifested in the cunning of their enterprises and the atrocity of their reprisals. Words had to change their ordinary meaning, and to take that which was now given to them. Reckless audacity came to be considered the courage of a loyal ally, prudent hesitation, specious cowardice. Moderation was held to be a cloak for unmanliness, ability to see all sides of a question, inaptness to act on any. Frantic violence became the attribute of manliness, cautious plotting a justifiable means of self-defense. The advocate of extreme measures was always trustworthy, his opponent a man to be suspected. To succeed in a plot was to have a shrewd head, to divine a plot still shrewder, but to try and provide against having to do either was to break up your party and to be afraid of your adversaries. In fine, to forestall an intending criminal, or to suggest the idea of a crime where it was wanting, was equally commended until even blood became a weaker tie than party, from the superior readiness of those united by the latter to dare everything without reserve. For such associations had not in view the blessings derivable from established institutions, but were formed by ambition for their overthrow and the confidence of their members in each other rested less on any religious sanction than upon complicity in crime. The fair proposals of an adversary were met with jealous precautions by the stronger of the two, and not with generous confidence. Revenge also was held of more account than self-preservation, oaths of reconciliation, being only proffered on either side to meet an immediate difficulty, only held good so long as no other weapon was at hand. But when opportunity offered, he who first ventured to seize it and to take his enemy off his guard, thought this perfidious vengeance sweeter than an open one, since considerations of safety apart, success by treachery won him the palm of superior intelligence. Indeed, it is generally the case that men are readier to call rogues clever than simpletons honest, and are as ashamed of being the second as they are proud of being the first. The cause of all these evils was the lust for power arising from greed and ambition, and from these passions proceeded the violence of parties once engaged in contention. The leaders in the cities, each provided with the fairest professions, on the one side with the cry of political equality of the people, 
on the other of a modest aristocracy, sought prizes for themselves in those public interests which they pretended to cherish, and recoiling from no means in their struggles for ascendancy, engaged in the direst excesses. In their acts of vengeance they went to even greater lengths, not stopping at what justice or the good of the state demanded, but making the party caprice of the moment their only standard, and invoking with equal readiness the condemnation of an unjust verdict, or the authority of the strong arm to glut the animosities of the hour. Thus religion was in honour with neither party, but the use of fair phrases to arrive at guilty ends was in high reputation. Meanwhile the moderate part of the citizens perished between the two, either for not joining in the quarrel, or because envy would not suffer them to escape. Thus every form of iniquity took root in the Hellenic countries by reason of the troubles. The ancient simplicity into which honour so largely entered was laughed down, and disappeared, and society became divided into camps in which no man trusted his fellow. To put an end to this, there was neither promise to be depended upon, nor oath that could command respect, but all parties dwelling rather in their calculation upon the hopelessness of a permanent state of things, were more intent upon self-defence than capable of confidence. In this contest the blunter wits were the most successful. Apprehensive of their own deficiencies, and of the cleverness of their antagonists, they feared to be worsted in debate, and to be surprised by the combinations of their more versatile opponents, and so at once boldly had recourse to action, while their adversaries, arrogantly thinking that they should know in time, and that it was unnecessary to secure by action what policy afforded, often fell victims to their want of precaution. Meanwhile, Corsera gave the first example of most of the crimes alluded to, of the reprisals exacted by the governed, who had never experienced equitable treatment, or indeed aught but insolence from their rulers, when their hour came, of the iniquitous resolves of those who desired to get rid of their accustomed poverty, and ardently coveted their neighbours' goods, and lastly, of the savage and pitiless excesses into which men who had begun the struggle, not in a class, but in a party spirit, were hurried by their ungovernable passions. In the confusion into which life was now thrown in the cities, human nature, always rebelling against the law and now its master, gladly showed itself ungoverned in passion, above respect for justice, and the enemy of all superiority, since revenge would not have been set above religion, and gain above justice, had it not been for the fatal power of envy. Indeed, men too often take upon themselves, in the prosecution of revenge, to set the example of doing away with those general laws to which all alike can look for salvation in adversity, instead of allowing them to subsist against the day of danger, when their aid may be required. While the revolutionary passions thus for the first time displayed themselves in the factions of Corsera, Eurymedon and the Athenian fleet sailed away after which some five hundred Corsirian exiles who had succeeded in escaping took some forts on the mainland, and becoming masters of the Corsirian territory over the water, made this their base to plunder their countrymen in the island, and did so much damage as to cause a severe famine in the town. They also sent envoys to Lacedaemon and Corinth to negotiate their restoration, but meeting with no success, afterwards got together boats and mercenaries and crossed over to the island, being about six hundred in all, and burning their boats so as to have no hope except in becoming masters of the country, went up to Mount Istoni, and fortifying themselves there, began to annoy those in the city, and obtained command of the country. 
At the close of the same summer the Athenians sent twenty ships under the command of Lachis, son of Melanopus, and Caroades, son of Euphilitus, to Sicily, where all the Syracusans and Leontines were at war. The Syracusans had for allies all the Dorian cities except Camarina. These had been included in the Lacedaemonian confederacy from the commencement of the war, though they had not taken any active part in it. The Leontines had Camarina and the Chalcidian cities. In Italy the Locrians were for the Syracusans, the Regians for their Leontine kinsmen. The allies of the Leontines now sent for Athens, and appealed to their ancient alliance and to their Ionian origin, to persuade the Athenians to send them a fleet, as the Syracusans were blocking them by land and sea. The Athenians sent it upon the plea of their common descent, but in reality to prevent the exportation of Sicilian corn to the Peloponnese, and to test the possibility of bringing Sicily into subjection. Accordingly, they established themselves at Regium in Italy, and from thence carried on the war in concert with their allies. End of Book 3, Chapter 10